Hello and welcome to All Being Equal. I'm Bernadette McSherry, the Director of the Melbourne Social Equity Institute, which supports interdisciplinary research across the University of Melbourne, which aims to ameliorate disadvantage. Today's podcast focuses on research relating to asylum seekers and refugees. The Social Equity Institute supports a number of research projects relating to citizenship and diversity, and we've set up a lecture series for asylum seekers in collaboration with the University of Melbourne's Refugee Studies Program. So first up, let's clarify who we're talking about. An asylum seeker is a person who's fled his or her own country and applied for protection as a refugee. The United Nations Refugee Convention defines a refugee as a person who's outside his or her own country and is unable or unwilling to return due to a well-founded fear of being persecuted because of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. Asylum seekers and refugees flee their country for their own safety and can't return unless the situation that forced them to leave improves. Migrants, on the other hand, choose to leave their home country and can choose where to go and when they might return to their home country. Australia has international obligations to protect the human rights of all asylum seekers and refugees who arrive in Australia, regardless of how or where they arrive and whether they arrive with or without a visa. To find out more about these obligations, I'm speaking with Dr Savitri Taylor from La Trobe University, who's currently a visitor at the Melbourne Social Equity Institute. Savitri is an expert in refugee law and asylum policy at the national, regional and international level. And she's a member of the Management Committee of the Refugee and Immigration Legal Centre in Victoria and an individual member of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network. Welcome to All Being Equal, Savitri. Now, I know you've been doing some research looking at how best to improve refugee protection in the Asia-Pacific region. Can you please tell us a bit about that? Okay, well, I start with a problem. And the problem, as you've said in your introduction, is that asylum seekers and refugees flee their country for their own safety. Most of them actually flee to neighbouring countries in the first instance, and most of them stay in those countries. Um, That's why the two top host countries in our region are Pakistan, which has... um, over 1.5 million refugees and asylum seekers or had that number at the end of 2014, which is the latest statistics that are available. And uh, then there's Iran, which is the second top host country in our region with 980,000 asylum seekers and refugees. And in fact, if you look at raw numbers or you look at numbers compared to a country's land area or you look at numbers compared to a country's GDP, What you'll find is that some countries in our region are bearing far more of the hosting burden than others. So from the perspective of the overburdened countries, that's a fairness problem. Now, I'm not too fussed about equity between states, actually, but what I care about is the flow on impacts um, of that inequitable distribution of uh, refugees and asylum seekers, um, what, what impact that has and on refugees and asylum seekers themselves. So most countries in our region um, think they're, you know, doing pretty well by just tolerating uh, the unauthorised entry and presence of refugees and asylum seekers. 
but they're not prepared to do anything more. So refugees and asylum seekers in these countries don't have the right to work, they don't have any other means of support, they can't educate their kids, um, you know, basically they can't survive, let alone thrive. And a lot of them are also mistreated in various ways by local populations and and government authorities. Um, and that's basically going to be their situation for the rest of their lives unless... Um, they're able to return to their own country, um, which is, you know, these situations that made them flee can be quite protracted sometimes, often. Um, or they, you know, or the other way that their situation might be resolved is if they end up being part of the lucky 1% that gets resettled somewhere else. Um, so it's not surprising that um, some of the these uh, people take matters into their own hand and they keep moving irregularly from country, uh, you know, through country after country, trying to find a place where they can, you know, they'll actually find, uh, have protection. And some of them, as you know, Bernadette, um, try to travel to Australia, but Australian governments of all political persuasions have uh, decided that they're not prepared to cop that. Uh, so they've worked out all these ways of stopping refugees and asylum seekers from getting here, but they haven't been all that fussed about what happens to the people that they stop from getting here. Um, so in other words, uh, which is my la rather long-winded way of saying, we do actually have a problem in our region of inadequate protection being available to refugees and asylum seekers, but regional governments are not all that interested in fixing the protection problem per se. All they're interested in is fixing the problems created for them by refugees and asylum seekers trying to help themselves because nobody's helping them. So you're saying that the source issues, uh, we really should be focusing on that. You know, what, what are the drivers for people seeking refuge? Uh, as opposed to, you know, border protection, we'll, we'll try and keep people out as, as much as possible. So the regional solution would be to look at uh, the source issue. Is, that, is yeah. that what you're saying? All of the above. We need to obviously work on root causes um, and we need to then also work out what the issues might be for people as they move through from country to country and whether there's ways in which they could be better protected uh, without having to keep on moving. So whether that's, um, you know, being given the right to work, being given the right to send their children to school, just things that enable them to make a, a life. So all of those things need to be dealt with, but it costs a lot of money. And it will all stabilise populations, which is the language that the Department of Immigration used to use somewhat. Um, it'll mean that fewer people move. But unless you can solve the problems of the world, hmm. you can't um, stop everybody moving. And you need an awful lot of investment of, over an awful lot of time in order to really tackle the 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 reasons why people move rather than trying to just stop their move. So governments decide the way to win elections is to stop people moving, not 
to really get down to addressing the reasons why they move. So a lot of my research has been looking at how can governments be persuaded to be more protection sensitive? Um, can protection gains be made through existing regional processes such as the Bali process or made through ASEAN institutions? How exactly could those gains be made? Or maybe is it better to focus on global institutions or national institutions rather than regional institutions? If governments can't be persuaded to step up, um, is there anything that civil society can do to improve protection without government buying? And so on and so on. Um, I'm at the stage of having a lot of questions, but not a lot of answers. I mean, I've got a heap of answers that would work in an ideal world. But if we lived in an ideal world, there wouldn't be any refugees and asylum seekers in the first place. Uh, so the answers, I'm trying to find are answers that would work in the real world. And that's still a work in progress, though I am managing to publish a few of my thoughts along the way. Well, it is an incredibly complex problem. and. We know through our research institutes that one way of approaching a complex problem is to cross disciplines. So, you know, to put together interdisciplinary research teams and, and so on. Now, you're looking at this um, very complex issue mm -hmm. from the perspective of a legal background. Mm -hmm. Would you describe your work as interdisciplinary as such? Um Yes, I would. I mean, exactly for the reason that you said that um, when you're interested in dealing with real world problems, you often can't uh, fix it by looking at it through the lens of just one discipline. Um, I'm a lawyer by formal training, but law is never enough on its own to fix any problems. So because of the nature of the problems I've been thinking about, I've trained myself up a bit in disciplines like political science and international relations, and I've drawn on them as well as law in what I write. Uh, sometimes, though, it makes more sense to work with people who are formally trained in the disciplines that are relevant to the problem. Uh, so I've worked with an anthropologist, I've worked with critical accountants, I'm working with a historian, uh, I'm thinking of working with an economist, though they speak a very different <laughs> language. Uh, basically, my approach is to ask myself, what are the intellectual tools that that might be useful in dealing with this problem? And then either equip myself with those tools or work in partnership with other people who already have those tools. Um, and there's all sorts of difficulties working across disciplines. But um, as you say, if you're dealing with a complex problem, that's the only way to go about it. Mm. Now, you mentioned your legal background, mm -hmm. and uh, I know you work with different legal organisations. And it seems from the legal perspective, there are enormous implications as to how asylum seekers and refugees are being treated at present. And uh, lawyers often talk about the rule of law and how this may be breaching the rule of law. Can you perhaps explain what that means and why we should be concerned about it? Okay. Well, as as you've just said, um, lawyers talk about the rule of law. Um, there's actually a distinction between the law and the rule of law. So 
any pronouncement by a recognised source of law made in accordance with recognised lawmaking procedures is law regardless of content. So, for example, there's a bill before federal parliament now called the Good Order Bill. That's the short name. I'll tell you, the long name is Migration Amendment Maintaining the Good Order of Immigration Detention Facilities Bill 2015. So that's why everyone calls it the good order bill or the use of force bill. Because if that bill becomes an act, guards and immigration detention centres will, for all practical purposes, be able to use force, even lethal force, against detainees with complete impunity. Now, if the good order bill is passed, it will be law, but it won't be consistent with the rule of law. Because at the heart of most rule of law theories is the idea that every action of government must be justified by and testable against um, pre-existing law. Um, So history has taught us that it's never a good idea to place our trust in the benign intentions of governments. It's much better to have mechanisms that force meaningful accountability on them. And then also most rule of law theories uh, incorporate a defense against arbitrary government action clothed as law by requiring that laws must as far as possible be generally applicable. And if, I mean, you can't treat all people exactly the same, but what you need to be able to say is that any differential treatment of uh, people has a legitimate aim and that that difference in treatment is proportionate to the aim. Um, And I think many of the laws we now have um, that are targeted, for example, at unauthorised maritime arrivals uh, don't pass that test. Uh, And a lot of people don't think that's a problem because... It isn't something that affects them. But what they don't realise is that there's no logical stopping place. They may not be unlucky enough to be part of an outgroup today, but who knows what the future holds. If the principle of equal protection of the law stops being sacrosanct, then no one can actually count on being safe from government victimisation in the long run. So you've said that you have lots of questions. Yes. Not so many answers, but do you get a feeling that there may be a shift in people's attitudes? Uh, maybe people are questioning the way we're going about border protection and so on. I'm, I'm just interested to, to know what your feeling is uh, about the general public as yeah. such, their views. Well, I obviously, I hope that it is possible to shift public attitudes One sees every so often that public attitudes do get shifted. The difficult part is obtaining sustainable shifts in attitude that last the distance despite what things might happen, you know, that freak people out a bit or whatever. And, you know, there's cause for hope out there in the sense of, for instance, you know, the marriage equality issue. Um, So things can reach a tipping point. A society that has one attitude can over time change to adopt another attitude. The hard part is working how you get there. And, uh, And, you know, there's a lot of hope because there's a lot of people out there that are trying in all the ways that they can to 
bring about that shift in attitude. Uh, but it's really hard to judge how much of a wholesale shift has occurred uh, because we all talk to the people who think the same way we do, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, we, we hope that your very important work, uh, Savitri, does perhaps push perspectives uh, in a little bit more of an optimistic way. So, Dr. Savitri Taylor, thank you very much for joining us on All Being Equal. Thank you. All Being Equal is recorded at the Hallwood Recording Studios at the University of Melbourne. Thanks to producer Gary Dixon and audio engineer Gavin Nabar. Subscribe on iTunes to make sure you never miss an episode. I'm Bernadette McSherry. Thanks for listening.